Will you please turn with me in your Bibles this morning once again to the fifth chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, where we are going to be looking together at verses 1 through 11. That's Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. You can find that passage on either page 1073 in your pew Bibles or beginning on page 24 in your Acts journals. You will remember last week that I told you that this really was going to be a two-part sermon on this section that I believe begins in chapter 4 with verse 32 and ends with verse 11 of chapter 5. It appears to me to be one of those places in Scripture where we do not completely understand or comprehend the chapter breakup. There most certainly is a comparison that is going on here that is introduced in verse 32 with the word now and continues with what follows the word but in verse 1 of chapter 5. And I mentioned to you last week that we would be looking at the positive work that was being accomplished in and through the church of Jesus Christ. And we witnessed there a unity within the church of Jesus Christ that is perhaps even a little bit convicting for you and I to consider. We are living in a day and age when it seems to be much more common to spend all of our time in the church on what it is that divides us. However, Luke, in the book of Acts, is constantly pointing to what united the church of Christ. He is looking at their unity. They are unified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They have been together united with Him in His life, His death, and His resurrection. They are united in Jesus Christ. And last week I pointed out three things that we see there specifically about their unity in the church. First, they were unified in their identity. We talked at length about that. I'm not going to go into it all again this morning. They were not finding or seeking out their identities in what they were as individuals. There was no discussion going on among them about their nationalities or their ages or their occupations or their differing social statuses. They were not arguing for position based on how much time they had been following Jesus for. Some had been with Him for years, some for days, perhaps even some only hours. But they were unified in their God-given faith in Jesus Christ. And understand, it's a diverse group. They were Jews and Gentiles. They were wealthy and poor, young and old. They were male and female. Yet they were of one mind. They were of one accord when it came to what united them together. They were all servants of the king, living joyfully in his kingdom. They were united by their faith in Jesus. They lived to be his witnesses to the world. Witnesses to his person and his work. Witnesses to his resurrection. Witnesses to his life-giving gospel. They lived for Jesus Christ. Secondly, we saw they were united or they were unified in the power of the gospel. We remember what brought them together. They have together become his witnesses through this spirit-empowered witness 
of other witnesses. The gospel is a gospel of power. And it has not only made alive what was already dead, but it has transformed them by the power of the Spirit and the Word to live entirely for Christ. They were once dead, and now in Christ they were alive. They were once blind, and now in Christ they see all things with life-changing clarity. They were once deaf, and now they hear and are changed inside and out, both by what they hear and comprehend. They were once lame, and now they are walking and leaping and praising God. Death has been translated into life in this group of followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. They have been transformed through the power of the Holy Spirit and the proclamation of the gospel. It is a gospel of power and of immeasurable grace. And they are united in that power and they are basking in and dispersing that grace to those around them. Finally, we saw they were united or they were unified in their purpose. They were committed to their mission, which was, of course, to be witnesses of Jesus Christ. And we saw that they had a very deep level of understanding that this is precisely what God had blessed them and prepared them for, this mission. His blessings, which were abundant, served to care for them as they carried out his purposes to preach the relief of the gospel to a dark, hurting, and desperate world. And I mentioned to you, this was not a new concept with just this early church. It was not new to understand that this indeed was their father's world. And that he himself was working all things together toward his own perfect and glorious will. We looked at the words of Psalm 67 and saw very clearly that it has always been the purpose of God's blessings to reach the ends of the earth with the good news of his salvation. And the church was united in that very purpose. They knew God from his word from his revelation of himself, and they trusted him in all things. They knew him, and they trusted him, and it showed. Beloved, this is the church of Jesus Christ. This unity and this idea of living as if everything truly belonged to God, who made it, was of course then embodied in the man Barnabas. Luke presents him as a humble, kind, and extraordinarily generous man. He was not clinging to anything but his life in Jesus Christ. He was gladly giving away the blessings of God in order to be a comfort to others who desperately needed to be comforted. He is outwardly loving, truly loving, and not just in word, but in deed. He embodies the genuine Christian, living for and desiring nothing but joyful service to his risen and reigning king. He loves his king, and consequently, he loves his kingdom. He recognized the blessings of the grace of God, and he was happy to be a blessing to others. 
But as I said, Luke paints this picture, warts and all. He's not at all content to tell us only the good and the positive, but he also gives us the bad and the negative. The truth. There was sin in the camp. Satan had been among them, and his fruit was made evident in the text that is before us this morning. And I'd like to focus in on that sin this morning and spend our time considering the deadly sin of hypocrisy and the just judgment that it brings here as the powerful Spirit of God is working in and through His people to build His kingdom. So if you've not yet done so, I ask that you turn with me in your Bibles to the Acts of the Apostles. Again, chapter 5, I'll be reading verses 1 through 11. Hear now the holy, inerrant, and infallible word of our Lord. But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession. And he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part, and he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias... Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? After it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last So great fear came upon all those who heard these things, and the young men arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, Yes, for so much. And Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look. The feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Father, again, we're grateful for the opportunity that we have to look to your word this morning. I pray that you would fill me with your spirit, that I would handle your word in a way that is not only correct and accurate, but in a way that your people are edified, a way that we are encouraged in the hope of the gospel. And Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I think that immediately upon hearing this text or even the text we looked at earlier this morning. For sure, this text, we are faced, at least on the surface, with some similarities between the two men, Barnabas and Ananias. For instance, I think I could say they were both apparently men of means. They both sold property. They both decided to give money to further expand the mercy ministry of the church of Jesus Christ. They both brought that money in privately, and we are told that they laid that money at the apostles' feet. 
And they were not the only ones who did it either. Luke tells us that the church was living under the wonderful grace of Almighty God. No one lacked anything that they needed because the church itself was selling off some of their possessions to care for the people of God. There was real and authentic love present in the church of Jesus Christ. They had been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and because of that powerful transformation from the inside out, They were now eager to love God and to love their brothers and sisters in Christ. And beloved, I I hope you see it for what it is. It is a beautiful picture of the transformative power of the gospel of Jesus Christ being applied through the Holy Spirit of God. And of these two men that Luke brings to our attention in this text, it was Barnabas who exemplified and who embodied the spirit of gospel-fueled generosity. His love for his fellow believers moved him to do all that he was able to do to ease their burdens, to show them the love of Christ. His heart longed to be a blessing to the body. And as I said, we know there were others. He was not alone in that desire. And as we dig in here, we need to make note of just a couple of things. Let me just say first, one of the things we must see here is that this is what the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to look like. This is not some pie-in-the-sky view of the church that looks great in theory or great in certain perfect circumstances, but really is reserved for when we all get to heaven, to glory when we all finally get to lay down all of the burdens that infect every part of this life in this broken and suffering world where we suffer under the weight of sin and its curse. Please understand me this morning. Glory will be wonderful. I can't, I can't wait to lay aside this body of flesh. Right? It will be wonderful But this is the church of Jesus Christ here in Acts. And they are like us, living in the tension between the already and the not yet. They are living under the Spirit-empowered blessing of the proclamation of the gospel, the direction of the Word of God, and the real and true fruit of the Spirit kind of love for their church permeates their existence. It's what the church is supposed to be. However, certainly we recognize that it's not always like that, is it? There is another side to the blessing of the brethren interacting within the community of believers that is often manifested in the church. Maybe more often than we like to admit. Not all in the church of Jesus Christ are truly in Jesus Christ by faith. You understand, not all in the church are believers. And I think it needs to be pointed out here that Luke rightly distinguishes himself here as what I would call a legitimate historian. He paints even the first century church 
I was just reading online this, this weekend uh, uh, an interaction where a guy was saying, hey, I've been reading the book of Acts and I've been looking at the, the, the early church and what happened? What happened that we're not like that anymore? Well, I think we're exactly like that, right? There's good and bad. And, and Luke paints even the first century church with all of the romantic things that might go with it, with all of the Holy Spirit power going on all around them, he paints it warts and all. He does not back away from the presence of sin and the judgment of Almighty God even within the community of the body of Christ. You all know that I love to read, right? It's the closest thing I probably have to a hobby. And I love to read from a variety of genres. I, I read, obviously, a lot of theology and doctrine as a pastor. I also love to read fiction. I love mysteries and thrillers. And I used to read a lot of Christian biographies. However, I want to tell you, I've slowed down on those. And the reason is that I began to grow frustrated with the sort of one-sided histories that are so often recorded in that particular genre of book. Do you know what I mean by that? Have you read a lot of Christian biographies? Some of them are wonderful. I'm not saying don't read Christian biographies. But often, the subject is treated as if they were so strong in their Christian faith and witness that they stood a close second only to Jesus Christ himself. And I have little tolerance for that kind of writing. All glory, all power, all righteousness, and no real struggle with indwelling sin. I probably need to give them another look, but I feel that there's something dishonest in that kind of storytelling. It sets the church up for serious bouts of wrestling with inferiority and lack of assurance. It points you towards someone else's faith being so much better in the eyes of both God and men. And it tears down, and it feels no compulsion to build up. And it is, in fact, often a lie. It's not a true picture of life in a broken world, filled with broken people, of whom we ourselves are numbered. And Luke, though painting a picture here that is nothing short of wonderful, does not shy away from the truth. We need to see it. There is very, very serious sin in the first century church. Hypocrisy is there among all the love and all the selflessness and all the faith. And I want us to dissect that heinous sin and tool of our enemy, the devil, this morning by pointing out to you just a few traits of hypocrisy that make it so dangerous to Christian unity. And that is what's being attacked here by the enemy, a strategy that he undoubtedly still employs today. The first thing we must see here in the example of Ananias and Sapphira is the subtlety of Satan that is displayed here. Probably already noticed it. As I said, from the outside looking in, Ananias is doing a lot of things right. He too is joining his brothers and selling off some of his own abundance. He's giving away what is his. He's laying it at the apostles' feet willingly. There's no rule directing that behavior. 
You understand that. This is not uh, socialism. No one's being directed to do this or else. This is not part of a plan to make the church the world's biggest landowner. These are willing participants selling what is rightfully theirs and then giving away the money. However, that's where the similarities between Barnabas and Ananias stop. They're not operating under the same motives. Externally, they look the same. Internally, they are opposites. Barnabas is doing what he is doing because Barnabas loves the church. He has compassion towards those who are in need. And he is truly generous because he knows that this is his father's world. Nothing belongs to him. Ananias is operating and carrying out another scheme of his father, the devil. Do you see why I would say that here? That the devil is subtle. Certainly the devil is a part of all of those attacks that are just beginning to assail the church of Jesus Christ from outside of their ranks. We've seen those. The enemy is there. They are wicked and it's obvious that he opposes the forward marching of the body of Christ toward the great and final triumph of the Lamb that we read of in Revelation. But he is also assailing the church of Jesus Christ from within. Not all Israel is truly Israel. Not everyone in the church as we see it is in the church as God sees it. There are weeds among the wheat. There are those in the church operating from selfish motives towards selfish ends. And Ananias is one of them. And I want you to see that here. This is not a well-meaning Christian brother who made a couple of small mistakes and was judged, quite frankly, rather harshly by God. No. Ananias and Sapphira are hypocrites. Do you remember that word? They're play actors. That's what the word literally means. They are pretending to be something that they are not. How can we know that? Luke shows us their motives. They wanted the glory for themselves without the cost to themselves. The only reason to lie about the amount that you held back is that you crave status more than peace. You want the accolades, you want the positive attention, but you do not want to pay the cost. They were liars. They were selfish. Ananias wanted to be seen like Barnabas, maybe even get his own cool nickname like Barnabas did. Build his own kingdom in the process. They were posers. Pretenders. And beloved, they were seriously ignorant of the God whom they mocked in the whole process. And none of it is new. You understand that too, right? 
Once again, I have to point out, it's not a new and novel sin creeping into the people of God here. You probably heard it this morning from the sin of Achan that was recorded in Joshua chapter 7. Luke forces us to consider these things in light of the continual biblical theology we see going on in this book as the church is beginning to consider what God has revealed and said in the past in light of their own current circumstances. Time will not allow us to dive too deeply into it this morning, but consider the similarities between Ananias and Achan. God showed himself in power through the miraculous defeat of Jericho as the conquering of Canaan began in earnest, right? You remember the story. They did nothing. They simply marched around the walls, blew the trumpets, and the walls came tumbling down. They were to utterly destroy the city after those walls miraculously fell before the God who is. They were only to keep the silver and the gold and vessels of bronze and iron, and they were to place them in the treasury of the house of the Lord. They belonged to the Lord. All of it belonged to him. The city, the people, the riches, the homes, the air that the people breathed, All of it was created by God, for God. It was his. And Achan, on the heels of so much of the power of Almighty God being displayed before his own face, thought to hide a little something for himself. He stole from God. And even as the judgment of God was being poured out because of his sin upon the people of God as they fled and fell before the people of Ai, Achan said nothing. He only confessed when he knew he was caught. And Almighty God wiped out his entire line in Israel. You understand, his name was no more. He was a hypocrite, a pretender, a troubler of Israel. He thought so much of himself and so little of his God and so little of the people of God that he could keep back what was God's for himself and then just hide in plain sight and think that God would not know. His view of himself was far too big. And his view of his God was far too small. The same sin is here in the early church with Ananias. Hypocrisy is the subtle tool of Satan to trouble the church of Jesus Christ. He uses it to disrupt unity and to thwart any attempt at ever restoring it. Beloved, it's not different. For us. The second thing I would point out to you here is that hypocrisy is never content to stand alone. Have you ever noticed that? You certainly see it here. Ananias is not alone in this act of treachery against the king and his kingdom. He brings along his wife, Sapphira. And she's caught up in the guilt of this act of deceit. 
She too wants the title without the cost. She too is an unbeliever and a troubler in Israel. Sin is infectious and hypocrisy always seeks to take out others because it is bent on deception. Appearing to men for the praise of men to be something that it is not. It often fuels that gossip in the church that is set aflame to burn and to hurt as many as it can. It often seeks to bring down reputations and good names of others in order to pump up its own. We have to see it for what it is. It is self-absorbed. It is destructive. And beloved, it is wicked. It's wicked. God has not now nor ever called on us to fake it in the Christian life. He has never said in his word that he grades on a curve and if you at least look the part, then he will give you full credit and heaven as a reward for all of your effort. I'm saying this knowing full well that at times I myself have joked about my own hypocrisy. Right? We don't take it serious enough. I've joked about it. And I want to tell you I repent of the foolishness that too often comes out of my mouth. This is a serious sin. One that should never be taken lightly. Because there's really only one reason to be a hypocrite in the church of Jesus Christ. There's only one reason to try to pull the wool, as they say, over everyone's eyes. And that reason is you are being used as a tool in the hand of the devil to disrupt the unity of Christ's church. And understand, I'm not talking about having mixed motives. We are all sinners, saved by grace, and as such, our motives are always a little bit mixed up on this side of glory. I'm talking about being content to be around the power of God and His glorious gospel, but never truly interested in being transformed by it yourself. Hypocrisy is the enemy of unity. Beloved, do you see the seriousness of it? I'm going somewhere here, I promise. I'm not at all interested in destroying anyone's assurance this morning. In fact, it's my hope to help you make, short, make certain that yours is not a false assurance. So let's get to the hope in the face of the wicked sin of hypocrisy. How can we have hope in light of hypocrisy and the destruction that it causes? Well, one of the hopes I think we see here is that hypocrisy will always be rooted out of the kingdom of God. Granted, it probably won't be this quickly. God takes the lives of these two pretenders in an instant. They fall down dead. Why? Well, they were mocking the Spirit of God here at the very outset of God so graciously pouring out that Spirit on His people. They thought that it was something that they could play fast and loose with. They had no real fear of God. 
They did not know him, and they certainly were unaware of his holiness. Again, we could spend weeks looking at this from the Word of God. I think of men like Nadab and Abihu. Their lives taken in a moment for their lack of awareness of the awesome and majestic holiness of God. I think of Uzzah, the man who wrongly reached out to steady the ark of God when the oxen carrying it had stumbled. He reached out and he touched what God said could not be touched because of his presence, and he foolishly believed that his filthy hand was cleaner than the ground upon which the ark might fall. Isaiah in the temple sees just the train of God's robe, and he starts to come apart at the scene. His hand goes over his mouth. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. God will be regarded as holy. And he will not be mocked. Beloved, I'm asking you this morning, do you approach him with this in mind? Do you revere him? Do you stand in awe of him? Do you see this life as truly lived, quorum Deo, right? Before the face of God. Do you see it that way? Because, beloved, it is that way. He knows not just your actions, but your heart. He knows not just your motives, but the thoughts driving them. You are laid bare before him. Nothing is hidden that will not be exposed by the truth. If not here than in judgment. But this is a kingdom of truth. The king is the truth. Truth will ultimately shine through. So can you see the foolishness of it all? Do you get a sense of the severity of it? What what do we do? Well, I'll close with it this morning we can clearly see that the subtlety of Satan is everywhere written on the sin of hypocrisy. We can also see the nature of hypocrisy is contagious, infectious. It never seeks to stand alone. It is a disruptor of unity, so it seeks those whom it may devour. By the grace of God, we also see that God will mercifully root it out of his kingdom. In this case, it was immediate, and rightly so. Some will not be rooted out until the day of judgment. But the kingdom of the risen and reigning king will eventually be completely devoid of hypocrisy and the hypocrites who wield it like a weapon. And so now we need to answer the question, what now? Perhaps you've recognized it in your own own heart. You recognize it in your own actions this morning. And you're asking yourself, have I been role-playing? Have I been content with the reputation and the status and none of the cost? Have I been a repeat offender in troubling the people of God because it does not look enough like me? Because if you recognize it this morning, beloved, I have good news. Praise God that you recognize. Because the time of salvation is now. 
Repent. Repent and run to the loving arms of Jesus and find rest from all of your labor. Have your sins removed from you as far as the east is from the west. Receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ and live with the assurance that He has set you free in Him and you are united to Him by faith. If you are united to Him by faith, it is as if you had never sinned and as if all the righteousness which Jesus Christ accomplished for you were truly your own. Trust Christ. And trade your mask this morning for his spectacular robe of righteousness. And pursue unity with your fellow sinners who have also been saved solely by the grace of Almighty God just like you. And I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here. We're going to look at it next week. But I want to tell you immediately, Following this very sobering removal of pretenders, Luke will show us the power of the gospel changing hearts and lives. The time is now. Will you, like so many others, bow your knee to King Jesus and receive his righteousness and live gratefully in him until he takes you home to glory where the struggle ends for eternity? The temptation towards hypocrisy is forever squashed and even forgotten. Where there are no more burdens to lay down. Beloved, I want to tell you, if you will, then this morning as we close our time of worship will perhaps be the sweetest that you have ever known. Run to the King and be set free by the glorious truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray.